Well, good morning. As you've probably noticed by the man bun, I am not Pastor Luke. Um, I do think Pastor Luke could pull off the man bun. Actually, it's called a top knot, um, but I don't think he's going to try. My name is Drew Hacker. I'm one of the elders uh, that is the privilege of serving here at Woodridge Community Church. And it's my privilege this morning to bring to you God's word. Um, We are going to continue this morning in our series, The Gospel According to Mark, and Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So if you want to pick up the Bibles in front of you, the Pew Bibles as they're called, or use your own Bible and turn to page 848 in the Pew Bibles, Uh, the translation that I'm going to be reading out of this morning is the English Standard Version. The, the, The scripture will not be on the screen, so I encourage you to open your Bibles with me this morning. starting in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Then they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. O great God, O God of our salvation, we come to you this morning, a needy people. God, we need your spirit to fill this place. God, we need your word to go forth and to equip us to convict us of sin, and to bring us to Jesus. Father, only you and your sovereignty can do that. We gather this morning as your church to worship you and to proclaim your goodness and your grace together. God, you are worthy of all of our worship. Lord, I pray that you meet us here, that you open your word to us, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there is anyone in here that has a struggling marriage, God, that you would equip them, um, that you would build them up together as Christ and the bride are meant to be, Lord, that you would use the Holy Spirit to allow the marriage to represent the church, God. You would heal any broken marriages in this place. And God, I pray if there's people here this morning who have not heard your word, who have not heard the gospel, that you would open their eyes, that you would allow them to see Jesus as their Savior, as the only one who can save them out of the mess that they're in, 
that they would put their trust in Jesus, that you would save people this morning for your glory. God, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, not for our glory, because we're so worthy or worth it, God, because Jesus deserves all glory and power and honor belong to him. God, be with us this morning, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. So, if you're anything like me this past week, or even if you don't like sports, there's a good chance that you have seen some of the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, or have at least heard about it. Even if you don't care about the Olympics, there is a good chance that you know that they are happening now. The 2016 Summer Olympics features 28 sports. The athletes will compete in over 300 medaled events in over 41 different disciplines, ranging from archery to football, fencing to driving, and many others. Sporting events like this take place across a total of 33 venues in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, located in four different regions of the city. Each of these events are amazing spectacles of at least four years of training for these Olympic athletes, all culminating in a few events that will make or break you as an athlete in your career. This competition, in a sense, is the climax of your athletic career where you represent your country. You get to represent your people. With most Olympic events, it's a race of endurance and thought. You need to take you need to know your body and the race and when to maintain a distance pace and when to push it to your limits. Take swimming, for example. If you're swimming, a lot of us have watched it because it's a lot of times on at night when we're all home from work. Um, if you're swimming the 200 fly or the butterfly and you push it to the max, the first three legs of that race, you're going to be done for the last leg and you will fail. You will not compete well. You would be exhausted. You need to show patience, perfect discipline timing with when you're going to kick it into gear. The same can be said with running and with most other Olympic sports. So I say this this morning because if you consider Israel at this time and the start of Jesus' public ministry with Lat, which lasted around three and a half years, the time we are reaching in the Gospel of Mark right now is the start of the Olympic game equivalent between the now leaders of Israel and Jesus the Messiah. They are competing for the prize, namely the people of Israel. Jesus had just started to kick it into gear, um, so to speak, and reach the climax of his earthly ministry here and is on a mission to save a people for his possession. He is finishing the last leg of the race, ready to win his prize. But like with the Olympics, there are a lot of others that are competing for that prize, namely the leaders of Israel. Right now, before we dig into the text um, I want to go back just a little bit and kind of summarize where we are um, in Mark. So um, two weeks ago, Jesus just finished cursing the fig tree and pronouncing judgment on the temple, if you remember Pastor Luke's sermon. But up to this point, um, throughout the Gospel of Mark, he had been very patient not to give it all too soon. In his perfect timing, instead of deciding to show his power and might in visible ways that would have literally blown the competition out of the water, Jesus begins to speak to the people in parables again. If you remember the last time that Jesus used this kind of teaching, we go back to Mark chapter 4. With the parable of the sower, the meaning of parables explained, a lamp under a basket, parable of the seed growing and the mustard seed, a lot of these were alluding to the kingdom of God, right? Up until this point right now, all of these parables had been directed toward a large crowd of people. 
all of the people that were following, the thousands of people that were following Jesus around. They listened to him teach about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom is here. And at this point, Israel was longing for this. They could not wait for the kingdom of God. Like a kid before Christmas, they were so eager and excited for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus starts the last leg of his race with going back to teaching in parables. So I want to go into the meaning of parables in Mark chapter 4 before we dig into the text. Mark 4 says, To you had been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may not see or may not perceive, and hearing they may, not under, they may hear and not understand, lest they turn and their sins be forgiven of them. So the effect of parables was twofold. Most of Jesus' parables were designed to present a truth, but do so in a subtle way. And the reaction is either to cause real believers to understand and to hear, ears to hear, eyes to see, right? Or to harden their hearts for those who are outside of the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks parables primarily to his people, Israel, but also to outsiders as a form of prophetic warning to warn of serious consequences for all who do not believe that he is the Son of God and open their hearts to him. So all through the parables, though, Jesus keeps plenty of room open for repentance and forgiveness. And so this morning, if you do not know Jesus, it is my prayer that you encounter him in a powerful way, knowing that you are here at Woodridge this morning for a reason. Jesus died for your sin, no matter how bad you think it is. And if you believe in him, that he is your savior, he will save you from your sin. Jesus loves you, as we just finished singing about. Repent of your sin and acknowledge that he is the savior of your life. And he will wash whatever sin you have white as snow. So after Jesus had just finished pronouncing judgment on the leaders of Israel by cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple, he starts teaching in parables. He just finished last week embarrassing the religious leaders in a public showdown over the source of John the Baptist's ministry and his own. But unlike other parables, this parable is different. He's not addressing the large crowds anymore, the people that are lowly heart with mercy and gentleness and patience. When it comes to the people of religious authority who have corrupted the worship of God, he spares nobody. So instead of starting at verse 1 this morning, we're actually going to start at verse 12, so the last verse in the parable, um, as he's talking to the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, and elders over the people. And they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So up to this point, we've kind of established that parables are seldom understood unless God wants people to understand or explains them like he did with his disciples. So this different parable teaches a different message and is more direct than Jesus' previous parables. This parable is understood by the religious leaders, which is not common with Jesus' teaching, right? They normally don't understand. This parable is a parable of judgment that is focused at the religious leaders of Judaism. As the temple was no longer a place of worship, but was a nest for prosperity gospel Judaism, where it was mostly about the money, right? You had to offer sacrifices, you had to buy those supplies at inflated prices if you were from out of town because you couldn't bring them with you. You would get raked across the coals or fleeced for your money to to buy the required elements of a proper sacrifice that was mandated by the law. 
a large percentage of these proceeds would go to the religious leaders, the scribes and the elders, as their cut, because they were the temple ministers. Basically, the point I'm trying to make is the elders and religious leaders can be seen as the upper class in ancient Israel. They would better understand this parable that Jesus is teaching to them than the rest of the people. They completely relate to what Jesus says, and it's clear that Jesus picks this story for a reason. So starting in verse 1 and 2 with the story from Jesus, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress. He built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. Now this was something that the religious leaders and the other people that were probably gathered around at this time could relate to absentee landlord issues. I don't know about you, but when Ashley, my wife, and I first were married, we rented a duplex, um, and the owners were very nice people, um, fantastic. We still, we really liked living there, but they were from like 45 minutes to an hour away, and they did not contract people to come fix problems that we'd have, so they would have to travel at their convenience to fix problems that we would have. So we would go days, sometimes even a week, with a clogged sink or a clogged tub. That would make it, it very difficult to like wash your hands and shower and do like normal stuff. So they were, in a sense, absentee landlords. So I'm sure some of you have probably experienced or are experiencing similar things right now. So absentee landlords in Israel's day were very common because they lived so far away. And if you were the upper class and you owned land and had servants, they would check things out for you. They would visit the tenants regularly to ensure that everything was being kept up well and then report back to the landlord on the status of their property. So in this particular story that Jesus says, it's pretty clear what is happening. There is a man who plants a vineyard and puts a fence around the vineyard, digs a pit for the wine press, and also builds a tower. He has a significant investment in the land and goes through great expense. So while this absentee landlord is gone, he leased the vineyard and the entire fermentation and winemaking process, which was likely what the vineyard was for, to what are called vine dressers. And so a vine dresser was a farmer who lived on the land and worked the vineyard. They were also called tenant farmers because they lived there and they farmed the land. So there was also a similar practice at this time with um, hirelings who shepherds would hire um, to guard the flock. So these hirelings were notorious for not having the same level of care for the sheep as the shepherds, and they would often run away and let the sheep be devoured by a predator when they came. They were untrustworthy, to say the least. So Jesus is saying that the owner has placed the vineyard in the hands of people who weren't completely trustworthy, these tenant farmers. When the owner sent his bondservants to get some of the fruit of the harvest, he is eagerly waiting the fruit of the vine to see how his latest vintage of wine had turned out. Jesus continues in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, the landlord sent a servant, or some manuscripts say it was a bond servant, who is not typically a normal servant who's there because he has to be. A bondservant means that they were very loyal to the owner and they had voluntarily chosen for some reason to stay in servitude, whether their family was there or something along those lines. So this loyal servant went to a vineyard, the vineyard, to receive the landlord's share of the harvest, which would have been the wine, as we've established. The result of what happens next is crazy, right? It's shocking. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. 
the untrustworthy tenant farmers who worked for the landlord refused to honor the wishes of the landlord via his servant, and instead of sharing the plenty that the vineyard produced, they see this representative of the landlord and they give him a good beating. They wanted the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. Not only did they not honor the request, but they beat the servant when he asked for it. So now at this point, we've established that these tenant farmers potentially were already untrustworthy based on their profession, but now they were untrustworthy and evil based on what they have done, based on their actions. So the vineyard owner shows extreme patience by not immediately dealing with them, but as we see in the text, the result only worsens. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Despite the servants that the owner sent, the response of the tenant farmers only escalates and are more and more cruel to these servants. After beating the first, they stoned the second, and they actually killed the third servant. And then it continued. Some they killed, and some they only injured. So as Jesus is speaking here, knowing who he's addressing, the leaders of Israel, you can probably see the anger rising in their faces as they understand, they are perceiving, verse 12 said, what Jesus is saying. They can see that in this story, God is represented as the owner of the vineyard. They are the untrustworthy tenant farmers, and the nation of Israel is the vineyard that they are supposed to be tending to making the fruit of worship for God. So Jesus, in his intelligence and sovereignty, is paralleling God sending his prophets, these servants that, as we know, are extremely loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were sent to the people of Israel to prophesy, pronounce judgment when they went astray and they started worshiping other gods. Their job was to make sure they worshiped the one true God and that he got all of their worship how did Israel treat these prophets that God sent to the Old Testament? Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16 gives us a really nice picture of that. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Isaiah the prophet, um, that is probably one of the most well-known prophets who was sent to Israel to tell about the coming Messiah, to repent of their idol worship and worship the one true God, was likely sawn in half um, as his form of death, as how they killed him, they was, he was sawn in half. Um, Jeremiah, who was writing, rewriting down the words of God to his people, was stoned to death. Ezekiel was also killed in the hands of the Chaldeans. John the Baptist, who prepared the way for our Savior Jesus and baptized him in the river, was also killed by being beheaded. So we see a trend here. Whenever Israel did not appreciate the message from the prophets, doing what God had sent them to do, being faithful to God, to claim the fruit of worship for his people, they would beat, they would kill the prophet, speaking God's word to them. They wanted to continue to worship their man-made laws. So Jesus here is exposing what is really happening and what has been happening for some time in the leaders of Israel, self-worship and the denial of God. Israel's 
leaders' performance is dismal to God. Their worship looks good from the outside, but it is empty and without faith. They themselves are starting to understand there is a disconnect here as Jesus' ministry is thriving, and they hate it. As Jesus thrives, it seems that they are diminishing, and they cannot stand that. So I wanted to also bring us in light of this, um, this story that Jesus is telling back to the Old Testament to an interesting prophecy from the prophet Isaiah before he is killed about a vineyard that is extremely interesting in light of this parable told by Jesus. It's titled, God's Disappointing Vineyard. And Jesus is likely very familiar um, with this story that Isaiah, or this prophecy from Isaiah um, as he is telling the story. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, um, Israel is referred to as a vineyard. It's a very common metaphor that has been used throughout the Old Testament, and the religious leaders that Jesus is addressing this parable to would understand this parable, or this story, excuse me. Isaiah 5, 1 through 2 says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So the prophecy, Isaiah's story, continues on showing us that God's anger was directed at the vineyard or Israel because it bore bad fruit. God did the work, just like the owner in Jesus' story. He planted choice vines, built a tower, gave them great care, but the vineyard brought forth wild grapes. The Hebrew here actually means literally stinking things. I don't know if anyone's eaten a rotten fruit or vegetable. It just, it's terrible. It leaves a terrible taste in your mouth. This was a worthless fruit, or rather, a man-centered worship. So God let the vineyard, his people, Israel, be destroyed with fire, Isaiah's prophecy continues on to say. Once they were destroyed, God did not tend to that vineyard or let rain fall on it again. Isaiah was pronouncing judgment on Israel represented as the vineyard here for their inability to produce good fruit for God. So in this current parable in Mark that Jesus is teaching, he is continuing the theme of worship from the last two weeks of teaching that we just had gone through in the series of Mark. He approached the fig tree, if you remember, and found nothing when there should have been fruit on the tree since it had the appearance of leaves and was in season. His actions of cursing the fig tree are symbolizing the hypocrisy that is at play here. Jesus is saying that the religious leaders had the appearance of bearing fruit, but they're not. The fig tree and the vineyard are both well-known metaphors for Israel. Jesus is making it clear here, truth from true worship, the worship we seek as the church to give God, worship that is in spirit and in truth from John 4, is not easily found in the Jewish nation. While there was no doubt based on the Bible and what it says that Israel may have borne some fruit, the leaders of Israel, by their misleading, selfish leadership, hinder that fruit from being given to God because of their wickedness. However, even though those stories do sound very similar, there is a large difference between Jesus' parable and Isaiah's prophecy that I want to bring to your attention. Jesus is making it crystal clear in his parable. So if you notice who 
the anger of the owner, the owner's anger is directed. It's not directed at the people of Israel or the vineyard like it was in Isaiah's prophecy, but rather it was directed at the wicked tenant farmers, the religious leaders who killed the prophets and silenced God's word, causing the bad fruit to be given to God. So we, as the church, have also been guilty of the very same sin. Think about it. Just like the religious leaders who beat and kill the prophets, we do the same thing, church, when we blatantly ignore God's word and choose to partake in sin. We ignore scripture that is speaking to us daily when we read it and we throw it aside outside of the vineyard. Thomas Jefferson was very well known to cut out parts of the Bible that he did not agree with or like, making his own Bible and making his own version of Christianity. When we choose to partake in sin and ignore what God has instructed us to do, namely perform good works for his glory, we are acting just like those religious leaders who beat and killed the prophets of old. And we are creating our own gods that cater to our own desires of our flesh. When this happens, it's clear. We have a small view of God and his word, just like the religious leaders Jesus was speaking to. They did not value God's word. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, God's word instructs us, it teaches us, and it corrects us. We would be fools to ignore it. Don't be like Israel's leaders and silence God's word. I urge you to get into it, feast on it. It is the only way to have knowledge in this life. If you are here this morning and you are in darkness, the Bible says in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You are likely lost because you do not know God's word. When you know God's word, it will make your path straight. I'm not saying that your life will all of a sudden become easy, right? That's not how the Christian life works. It is hard. It is full of faith in God. But I am saying he will take care of you and he will give your life meaning. Your life will cease to revolve around yourself and you will start to worship God rightly because of what Jesus has done. You will understand it through his word. Don't be like Israel. Don't ignore God's word. You will live the rest of your life spiritually malnourished and anorexic, meaning you will think you are fed and that you are full, but you will be starving spiritually. When God looks at you, instead of seeing this fit spiritual person, you will be skin and bones if you are not in God's word. Just like Israel's leadership was. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He continues with a couple other aspects of this story that are worth mentioning. In his continuing efforts to deal with the wicked tenant vine dressers, the owner decides to send someone else, perhaps a last resort. Verse 6 says, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him, saying, Sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. R.C. Sproul um, has a fantastic quote about this parable. Um, He says, I wonder whether any of those standing there 
remembered how God the Father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism, saying, You are my beloved Son. And the transfiguration saying, This is my beloved Son. There is no doubt that the Son in the parable was a representative of Jesus. Church, our God is patient and is slow to anger. He is merciful and he is kind. Though the owner of the vineyard, our God, could have wiped the people out, the Israel's leaders, he chose to wait and to send his beloved son to get some of the fruit from the harvest from his vineyard. Using this story, Jesus is saying that God had sent him into the world to save it, but Israel had a widespread rejection of him and his message. How the tenants treat the son shows a direct correlation with how the tenants view the landlord. The religious leaders knew that he was talking about them. They rejected the light of the world, the Son of God in favor of empty worship and man-made tradition. John 1, 4, John 1 9 through um, 11 says, The true light, which give light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In the story, as is expected back in that time, the son was normally the one who was going to inherit everything that the father had, right? Instead of joyfully welcoming the son and receiving the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard, they do something sinister. This must have been a shocking twist to the story for the people that were listening to Jesus. Verse 7 says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now, the reason they said this was not because they thought that if they all of a sudden kill the landlord's son, that the landlord will give them the son's portion of the inheritance. No. Likely back at that time, the landlord should have been the next one to come after the servants had all been discharged. They took this as a sign that the landlord had most likely died when he went away into the far country. It's with this mindset that they see the beloved son coming. They took the beloved son and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard, the same fate as the bondservants who had come before them, thinking now that the land is now theirs to do with as they please. This must have been chillingly revealing for the religious leaders who are present here chillingly revealing their plans and their plots plots to get rid of the heir to the vineyard, Jesus Christ. They were probably enraged at this point, again, that Jesus knew the thoughts and intentions of their heart, their secret council meetings, their plots against him. They wanted Jesus dead. I found myself, as I was preparing this message uh, this last week, thinking and asking myself this question, would my response have been any different than that of the religious leaders? I wanted to say yes, but it's not. In my pride and in my flesh, I would have done the exact same thing that they did. R.C. Sproul says that um, we should not believe that the world is as truly indifferent to God as they say they are. If God himself came to earth today and people were given the power to destroy him, he would surely be put to death. I am not speaking theoretically when I say that because it actually happened, just as Jesus said it would happen. 
Just a few days after he spoke these words, they seized the son, they abused him, and they killed him outside of the city, outside of the vineyard of God. Jesus continues um, his story, his voice probably very rich with emotion, knowing what is coming in the next three days. Verse 9 says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Our response to the Son, like Israel's, will determine our eternal destiny. Jesus provides the answer to his parables, which the religious leaders understand, and in understanding it, they will condemn themselves, and in doing so, everyone that follows after them will be condemned. And we see this. Historically, God judged Israel because of their rejection of the Son. In AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the nation was brought into ruin. Jesus was saying that God will destroy the temple, the Jewish sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, and all the rest. In doing this, God would destroy the very heart of Judaism. The same judgment will come to all those who refuse Jesus today. Jesus uses this well-known messianic prophecy to close the teaching portion of this parable, but switches up the terms at the end. The builders refer to the leaders of Israel, and Jesus is taking the name of the cornerstone, the stone that is cast aside by the leaders of, and the people of Israel as worthless, but this cast-aside cornerstone is the stone that is most important to the entire structure which ensures stability and symmetry in buildings. Like the demons who recognized Jesus as the Son of God, who could destroy them with a word, the leaders of Israel see Jesus as the biggest threat to their existence and will discard him like a stone off the path. Just throw him away. Church, when we are sitting on the throne of our lives, instead of submitting humbly to the supremacy of God in all things, we also perceive Jesus as the biggest threat to our existence. When we are sitting on the throne of our lives, instead of submitting to the supremacy of God, we also perceive Jesus as the biggest threat to our existence. We are guilty of contending for supremacy with Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and through him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. All things were created through him and for him. And it is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Three days after Jesus tells this parable, just three days later, this happens. Jesus, through this story, is judging Israel's leaders, and three days later he accepts the judgment of all mankind as he is slain on the cross. 
He's judging Israel's leaders for their lack of worship, but in his mercy and grace, accepts their judgment in full on him as he is slain on the cross. And he does the same thing for you and for I. Going back to our Olympic game picture, the event that would give Jesus all the gold medals happens. Jesus suffers humiliation by his crucifixion, crucifixion, dying the death we deserved, dying the death that the religious leaders of Israel deserved. But God will use this for a greater purpose, as we know. God had sent his one and only son to his people. They will murder him in an astonishing offense. But in God sending his son, we are reminded of Christmas and the incarnation, the wonderful gift of grace to God's people because of his amazing love. And in the killing of the son, we are also reminded of Easter, the crucifixion of Christ, the grace of God, and for his once for all sacrifice for the sins of those who believe in him. To reject the son you are rejecting the one who sent him. And this is an act of spiritual insanity which needs to be dealt with. God dealt with people who reject the Son and continues to do so today. If you are a Christian sitting here this morning, Jesus has accepted the judgment that you and I deserve. It was placed on him as he died on the cross. Drinking the full cup of the Father's wrath against you and against I. And he finished it when he cried out, it is finished. In doing so, he has finished the training that he started three and a half years ago when his public ministry began and it has ended in this event. Jesus died for his people. That means you, church. He bore your sins and your shame on the cross because he loves you. We on this side of the cross know that we are the people of God. We are the church. The church is the bride of Christ. He has purchased us with his blood and we are precious to him. Ephesians 5.25 talks about this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Scripture is clear. God is saving a people for his possession, and due to the religious leader's widespread rejection of Jesus, he has given the kingdom to us to give him real worship, worship that is spirit and truth. We are special church. God loves us. But as we all know, if we are honest, we still have some work to do together, don't we? So the last point I want to mention, kind of a a culmination of this parable, um, is that church, we are the vineyard, we are the chosen people of Christ, but with vine dresser-like tendencies. We are the church, the people of God, his chosen people, his called people, but we still have those vine dresser-like tendencies inside of us. We are the bride of Christ that he shed his blood for, but at the same time, we are sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. 
Every time we willingly partake in sin, we are beating God's messenger, capital M, just like the vine dressers. Every time we set aside God's word, his prophets, all of scripture that is God-breathed, we are beating, we are stoning, and we are killing God's messengers. Every time we look down on others or refuse to submit to God's authority over our life, we are making the death of Christ a mockery, and we need to repent, church. We must open up the word of God and drink deeply of it for more than just five minutes. You need to know this book. You need to get in this book. You need to get rid of all the excuses when it comes to time and get in God's word to know who he is. We should rely on God's word as a church and on his Holy Spirit to interpret that word to us. Pray through scripture, read the word, and sit under God's teaching regularly as we gather throughout the week. You were made to worship God in spirit and in truth through the blood of Christ. Don't produce false worship like the religious leaders. Don't go through the motions this week, church. Acknowledge your sin and the part you play in it. You are 100% responsible and you need to confess your sin and bring it into the light. Don't seek moral justification for your actions like the religious leaders did. Through his patient teaching, we see that Jesus was actually tearing down Judaism brick by brick, much like he said he would do with the temple, but he was building it back up into himself and making his church his prize that was worth dying for. Know who you are, church. The last scripture I'm going to read this morning before I close in prayer is from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. I want you to Think about these words. Know who you are, church. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to you to do. This is to you, church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, we are made to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ by his gospel. You are his church. God meant it to be this way all along. Jesus himself says at the end of the parable, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you know all that Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross through his death and his resurrection? Is Jesus marvelous in your eyes this morning? I pray that if he isn't, that he is moving forward after today. Let's pray. 
Oh, great God, we thank you so much for giving us your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to live the perfect life, the sinless life that none of us could ever achieve on our own. He lived and he was killed by his own people. Father, and in your sovereign plan, you chose to give the kingdom of God to the church. We know that there is a place for Israel still, that the inclusion of Israel is is manifest in your word, God, but we thank you and we praise you for giving us salvation this morning. I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, God, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from whatever they are caught up in, drunkenness, sexual immorality, anything, Father, and they would trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace that you freely give to them. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to worship you. Help us to apply this message this week as we go forward. Help us to get in your word and give you the praise you deserve. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.